The spring term starts with a depressing inevitability. There is nothing remotely springy about it. I finger comb my hair for the first day back because I still can't find my hairbrush. B doesn't know where it is. Iris doesn't. I've even searched the laundry basket. Not there. A couple of colleagues who know what is going on ask me how I am, and I'm sure they regret it when I spill everything out. I must stop, or no one will want to talk to me anymore. But it's when I speak about it that I realise how much is bottled up inside, how much stress and dread and fear and apprehension. Time is catching up with us now. The judge has disallowed the cross-examination being held at the beacon. B must go to the Crown Court to do it. At least I'll be there to support her. Except I won't, because David emails me to say I will be a witness. That means I can't accompany B, and I won't be able to attend the trial until after I've given evidence. Though I welcome the opportunity to say my piece in court, this news is a blow. Phil will have to go with B instead of me. B is getting worse and worse, unable to sleep, to go to school. I know she's going into my bedroom, finding my scales wherever I hide them and compulsively weighing herself. I know she's not eating enough again. I take B to the beacon to meet the advocate. As we wait, there is a constant traffic of people coming and going, many of them girls and boys much younger than B. What's happened to them? I think. Who harmed them? All this sexual abuse in one small part of one London borough? It hardly bears thinking about. At home, I go into Iris's room. She's working on still life drawings in art GCSE, and her chest of drawers is covered in little groups of objects an apple, pear and orange with a couple of flowers from the bunch on the kitchen table, a collection of glasses of different sizes and patterns. It almost breaks my heart. This is what our lives should be. School, homework, holidays, fun. Not police stations, courts, organisations for victims of sexual abuse. I discuss with Frankie that it has been confirmed that the fiancé's visit was to offer a bribe to be to drop the case. How much? Frankie asks. And where would he get the money from? I don't know. It seems fantastical. Another example of you couldn't make it up. But I'm assuming that it wouldn't be much. Two hundred quid, maybe? I won't find out until much later how massively I've overestimated what Mr. Y thought B's silence was worth. Later, I read a story in the paper about an Afghan baby boy separated from his parents in the air evacuation from Kabul. The baby was found, in inverted commas, by a taxi driver, who took him home to his wife and daughters to look after. A neighbour became suspicious and sounded the alarm, and the baby's grandfather got to hear about it. The grandfather then came to get the baby back, as the parents had already fled to Canada. He brought with him an incentive to encourage the taxi driver and his family to part with the infant. The payment? A sheep and some walnuts. So, in Afghanistan, the going rate for the return of a boy child to his rightful family is one sheep and an undefined number of walnuts. It's sad, pathetic, pitiful. But it resonates with the defendant's attempts to bribe B to drop the case. How much, then, would recompense for the violation of a female child? Just the walnuts? Perhaps not even that. As I'm waiting in the dermatology department for my skin appointment, which has finally come through, one of the clinicians comes out and barks out a name. Thank God it's not mine. She's fearsome, and if anyone shouted at me like that right now, I'd collapse into a flood of tears. Fortunately, someone else has drawn the short straw today. I get the lovely doctor. 
She sends me to the medical photographer and then, by great good fortune, there's a slot right away for the biopsy. Having a bit of my body cut off me seems completely inconsequential. Trivial. Just get it over and done with, one less thing on my to-do list. The next day is the date for B's cross-examination. The weather is mild again after the recent cold snap, and dawn brings a sullen heaviness, a grey absence of colour accompanied by constant drizzle. In a way, I'm glad. Somehow, it would be worse if the weather were glorious, like a cruel taunt or jibe. The news tells of the development of an app that women can use to allow their friends to track their movements, and that will sound an alarm if they stop for more than three minutes. Its launch is accompanied by an outcry. Once again, it puts the onus on women to modify their behaviour because of male violence, rather than making men accountable for their actions. There have been several reports over the last few weeks of rapes and attempted rapes of female runners in London parks, most in daylight hours. I remember what the police officers told us on the night of B's assault. Nowhere is safe. Nowhere is out of range. And then, in the Republic of Ireland, Ashling Murphy, a 23-year-old teacher, taking her habitual after-work run along a canal bank, is murdered. As I say... For women, nowhere is safe. We can't do what we want, go where we want, when we want, because of men. David is coming at 10.45 to pick B and fill up. I get B out of bed, she needs to get dressed, have breakfast. I can't imagine how she is feeling. But I need to talk to her, to tell her not to let the defence back her into a corner, to make sure to ask for time if she needs it, to say if she doesn't understand. B won't listen, angrily brushing me away. I don't think she can listen. She is stressed beyond belief, filled with self-loathing and shame and guilt and fear. As if she is the one who has done something wrong, not that monster. She thinks the judge and the defence barrister are going to shout at her, tell her off. I reassure her that they're not, but she retaliates with, How do you know? On TV they do that all the time. And you've never been to court, have you? And it's true, I haven't. But I know it's not like on the TV. I try to tell her this, to calm her down, but she just puts her hands over her ears and storms off to her bedroom. I need her to eat something, to drink something. I've picked the skin around my fingers raw and my thumb starts bleeding. I suck it, the metallic tang of the blood souring my mouth. Time drags, hangs motionless, lowering. I look up the court lists on court serve. I scroll down the listings looking for Mr. Y's name. Another name catches my eye. At the first school I worked at in London, when I was doing teacher training after a career change, I was verbally abused and threatened over a sustained half-an-hour period by a sixth-form student in an English GCSE retake class. It's the reason I left the school. He was an angry, violent young man, and when he took his anger out on me, I was terrified. The school was entirely unsupportive. The name I've seen on the court list is his name. It could be a coincidence. There are probably other men with that name, though it's not a common one. But I wouldn't be surprised if it were him, that he's gone to the bad and become a criminal. He showed all the signs. I scroll on down and find the listing I'm looking for. B's judge is a woman. Is that good or bad? Surely good. I tell B as she eats breakfast toast and strawberry jam that she's carefully weighed out to the milligram. Eventually, David comes. As I'm not allowed into the court building, I'm staying at home. 
I can't help it'll be better for me to be here than wandering the distinctly insalubrious streets of the area in which the court is located. At least I can get a nice supper ready, change B's bedsheets, do some chores to make our home a pleasant, comfortable place. I see them out of the door, closing it behind them and sinking back against it. There's nothing I can do now but hope and pray. In the bathroom, I can't avoid catching sight of my reflection in the mirror above the basin. Thank God I don't have to go, because I still haven't found my hairbrush. The day lasts forever. Phil reports back from the court. They're in a bare, barren waiting room with strip lighting and a broken sink. The courtroom itself is tiny. The defendant stands an arm's width away from the person giving evidence. Thank goodness B is not in the same room as him. They started, Phil says, then almost immediately broke for lunch, and then the video link stopped working. It's agonising, Phil states. I understand. It's agonising for me, too, waiting. What it's like for B, I can't begin to imagine. Poor, poor B, having to suffer this ordeal. Finally, just before 6pm, they get home. I grab B before she's even inside the door, holding her, hugging her. The barrister has apparently told Phil during the day that she is not sure yet if I will actually be called to give my evidence or not. This annoys me. I could have gone with B after all, if I'm not going to be a witness. The other disturbing news Phil brings back is that the expert witness's evidence on memory has been deemed inadmissible, but no one knows exactly why. Or at least they're not divulging to us the reason. The barrister says it doesn't matter. But who will make the point about memory loss and trauma? Phil and B have been given strict instructions not to discuss any part of the case with me. B must not tell me any of the questions she was asked, as these reveal some elements of the defendant's side of the story. The fact that he has a story is significant. At the time of his arrest, five days after the rape, Mr. Y gave a prepared statement and a no-comment interview. Since then, he's read the police reports, every witness statement, watched B's video-recorded interview and had numerous meetings with his legal team. He's had six months to invent his own narrative, concoct his own version of events. We, B, all of us on her side, we know nothing. Nothing about what anybody has said apart from ourselves. My concern is whether the jury knows this. I didn't know it before this case. I didn't know that the defendant gets given all the information and the complainant none. I knew about the police caution. It may harm your defence if you do not mention anything now that you later rely on in court. But how did the jury hear that? Is it possible, when so much claim and counterclaim is swilling about, for anyone to hold all the information in their head? Will the jury remember, when they are deliberating, which bits the defendant has made up after the event? which in effect is everything, given he said nothing at first. The advocate sends a message. B did well. She held it together. She answered every question. She's a superstar. Of course she is. But she's also a victim, a child who's gone through something terrible. And we are a family in agony, facing the very real thought that this man may well get away with what he's done. There's precious little super or starry about that. After a week of bird's nest hair, I find my hairbrush. It's right there, under my nose, in the cupboard in the bathroom. I don't know why it's in there, as I don't keep it in there, and I have no recollection of putting it in there. But the weird thing is that I haven't seen it until now, as I use the cupboard every day. 
The result of my discovery is hair that is tangle-free and smooth for the first time in days. I call the GP to arrange to take the stitches out of the biopsy wound. It's not ideal, as the practice nurse is blind as a bat. She's done stitch removal for me before, and always leaves some in, that Phil has to take out with tweezers soaked in dettol. But in the event, this is irrelevant. The doctor's receptionist tells me that they don't have any practice nurses right now, and therefore they cannot do the stitch removal. I'll have to get it done somewhere else, back at the dermatology department in the hospital, or at a walk-in clinic. My heart sinks. The thought of trying to get through to the right person at the hospital fills me with doom. It simply won't happen. And anyway, the hospital made it quite clear to me that they do not do stitch removal. A walk-in clinic, on the other hand, sounds like the kind of place you'd have to be desperate to try to get an appointment at, and by the time you've been seen, it'll probably be the next millennium. I don't have time for this. As already mentioned, Phil has had to tidy up the work of the bat-blind nurse, and, one holiday in Mallorca, he removed under local anaesthetic the five anemone spines I acquired in my foot. When I say local anaesthetic, what I mean is three glasses of Rioja Blanca, obviously. Looks like it'll be Phil, my embroidery scissors, the dettol, and the tweezers again. At work, I try to focus, to concentrate, but it's darned hard. I spend six hours one evening setting my cover work for the trial that's due to begin on Monday. B should be sitting mock A-level exams, but it's been decided she can't participate. Over the last six months, I've been persuading and cajoling her into school, and I've been successful 60-70% to of the time. But now, because of the mock exams, there's no regular school and so no reason for her to get up. So she doesn't. She stays in bed all day, blind down, watching YouTube or sleeping. The only respite is Colin the kitten, whose mad habits of bringing huge sticks in from the garden, how does he get them through the cat flap, and of eating human food, bagels, rice, avocados, gives us all a reason to laugh when there isn't much else around that's funny. On Friday, I crack and send an email to the police asking for information on the trial. Where is it? What time? I can't believe nobody has told me this. The reply I get from Luke, which I read when I get to work, knocks me for six. He tells me that the case will be heard at a Nightingale court, not the main Crown Court building, and goes on to say, The courtroom is smaller than a Crown Court room and or set up differently. To accommodate the jury, the public gallery is not in the courtroom and is in a separate room within the building where the proceedings can be viewed on video link. I have been told the room only allows for three people, and it would not surprise me if his extensive family will also be present. Therefore, it may be utilised by them, and could be upsetting for you to be in their presence, and or hear details of the case. David slash DC Megan Wade could instead keep you updated of proceedings. However, it is a decision for you and Phil, and if you really want to view, I suggest only one of you due to the space issue. Wait, hang on a minute. D.S. Gallagher is suggesting that I should give up my right to attend the trial of the man who raped my daughter in order that his family can do so. D.S. Gallagher is also telling me that I will find it upsetting to be there with the defendant's family. If we must insist on going, it should only be one of us. And perhaps most preposterous of all, the notion that D.C. Megan Wade will keep us updated This person, who has not sent me one communication over the entire course of this investigation. Not one. Not a phone call, not a text, not an email. The idea that she will suddenly turn into a conscientious super-communicator seems far-fetched, to say the least. The day is interminable. 
as the last of my year sevens file out of my classroom at 3.30pm, wishing me a good weekend because they are sweet like that. I fade. My head falls to my desk, and I sit, unable to move. I am so, so tired. How I get home, I don't know. I do it on autopilot, one foot in front of the other, barely conscious, just following the route I know so well. I don't care if I have to play some sort of macabre game of musical chairs with the family of a rapist, I'm still going to the trial, and I don't see why Phil and I would be more upset than his relations anyway. He's the one on trial, not B, though admittedly it often seems to be the other way round. Ever since this whole thing started, I've had the thought, every now and again, of what happens if someone gets COVID. I've mostly been worried about it being our barrister and someone else having to take over, someone who doesn't know the case at all. At 5.57pm, I get an email from David, and I find out what happens if someone has COVID. The defendant has tested positive and the trial cannot go ahead. There will be a hearing on Monday to reset the date, but it's likely to be weeks, if not months away. After so long, so much waiting, so much anticipation and apprehension, such a monumental build-up, it's not going to happen. It's the worst possible news. 